Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. I hope you're all doing better than I am. Oh man, I apologize for the the delay in how many weeks it's been since we've released a podcast, but with all of us being on the road for the last throws of hunting season and then losing one episode due to a technology issue... And then me being laid up and sick, uh, well, it's just put us behind. So I appreciate y'all being patient and waiting for us. Uh, today, I think it'll be worth it. Our buddy Jim Bachdale from Prince of Wales Island up in Alaska. You've seen Jim on a lot of our episodes. Uh, most people recognize Jim by his jolly smile. His belly laugh, his big bushy beard, and often his custom-made hawking rifle. Uh, but today, we uh, we have Jim. He came all the way to Montana uh, to see some friends and then to do this podcast. And Marcus, uh, chief number one ace videographer and field producer uh, are going to tell the story about when Marcus went up with Jim in August. Uh, Jim drew one of the very rare Alaska bison tags and uh, that season started in late August. Marcus flew up to film it all and capture it all and if you know Marcus he's been through a lot, seen a lot, filmed a lot of great stuff and when he got home, he instantly told me, he said, this might be the most remarkable landscape I ever have had the chance to film. And I'm like, whoa, Marcus and I have been on some really, really cool places, so this must be worth it. Um, and the story of the adventure and the logistics were so cool. I asked Jim, I said, you know, you mind doing a podcast on this? And he said, yeah, I'll come down in December and let's do it. Well, little did I know I was going to end up with some sort of virus. I've been tested for everything. I don't have COVID. I don't have influenza. They say I've got some other viral infection, whatever that means. What it means is I sound about as bad as I feel. But you know what? At least it happened right when we got off the road instead of during the middle of the season. So... I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all of you who, who tune in and listen to this stuff. And I'm grateful for all the sponsors that make it possible. Uh, Leupold Optics. Hope you go out there, check them out, go to leupold.com. Uh, they're just such a huge supporter in public lands, conservation, access, shooting, you name it, hunting. Uh, Nosler. You, know, you can almost talk of Nosler and Leupold in the same sentence and 
just insert the the company name uh they're both family-owned company that have been around in the hunting and shooting space forever uh nosler's based in bend oregon and uh you'll hear jim talk about in this episode he used a, a nosler 180 grain uh e-tip to shoot that bison up there in alaska uh we use e-tips in a lot of our rifles uh they're <laughs> they're just well they're just bad medicines uh, i don't know how i'll say it so uh and then we've got uh go hunt insider um it's application season coming up you're gonna hear a bunch of our uh bonus podcasts we call them where we just do these short 10 15 minute podcasts about reminding you of deadlines and stuff and then we do longer detailed portions out on our youtube channel uh and all the information we use comes from gohan's insider and we use it for three all three stages of our hunting year um what we call application season which is the winter research season which is summer and hunting season which is the fall so if you go out there sign up for gohan uh, use promo code Randy. They're going to give you $50 of credit in their gear shop, and they got a great gear shop. I mean, it's serious stuff. It's stuff like Mystery Ranch Packs, who is also a sponsor of this podcast. Uh, Mystery Ranch Packs, if you want to save 10% on your Mystery Ranch Pack, go to the Go Hunt gear shop, put it in your, your cart, and any item that is not on sale, with the exception of a couple things, but any regular priced item that you put in your cart and check out using promo code Randy, Gohan's going to give you 10% off. How's that? Save 10% off your Mystery Ranch pack. Can't hardly beat it, huh? And then uh, we've got Outdoor Class. Uh, you know, OutdoorClass.com is where you go and you can sign up and there's it's a platform that we're a part of that launched last summer and there's me doing rifle elk Corey jacobson doing archery elk and all of Corey jacobson's university of elk hunting is now out there as part of outdoor class remy warren does mule deer jamie tegan hank shaw they both do cooking uh we're working on a bunch more i think in about a month month and a half they're gonna have my pronghorn class ready to go so go to outdoorclass.com if you're interested and all this information from all these you know pretty experienced people who've been doing this uh and when you sign up again use promo code randy and they'll give you 20 percent off so can't beat that either and then i always like people to know that we have our fresh tracks plus platform if you go to freshtracks.tv uh, if you're interested in in that it's ad free it's early release of content it's some exclusive content uh and it's a very high viewing experience uh and those of you who know why i started a subscription platform was i got tired of all the big tech companies using my audience uh information and personal profiles for them to make money and we don't do any of that so we just want you to be able to watch our content and not have to worry about all that stuff with those big tech platforms. So anyhow, FreshTracks.tv is a place where you can do that. And uh, Marcus has the technology figured out here. Uh, they are at my office right now. I am still contagious, according to the doctor I went to yesterday. Uh, so we're going to try to do this remotely. I feel bad for the editor, Joe. Uh, he's got to try take my file, which is me and on a remote, 
and then take Marcus's file and Jim's file and try to merge them all. Anyhow, folks, really appreciate you being here. Appreciate your patience while we had a few tangles and headaches uh, trying to get some podcasts recorded, but I can assure you the list of guests we have coming up is, well, we're going to have a ton of podcasts and uh, some really, really compelling guests, some super good topics. So this is the first of many uh, getting back on track, and I really appreciate all of you being here. Thanks so much, and uh, here we go. Well, folks, I hate to say this, but I am sick as a dog today, and one of our best friends on the whole planet, Jim Bakesdale, came all the way from Thorn Bay, Alaska, to talk about the bison hunt that he and Marcus went on this year up in Alaska. And normally when Jim's in town, we go chase mountain lions, or I don't know what, we do something that usually gets us in some sort of bad predicament. <laughs> But I'm sorry, Jim, thanks for coming down, but don't make me laugh because I'll start coughing. I'll sound like my grandma Harriet after four packs of Paul Mall non-filters that day. How are we going to do this and not make you laugh? I don't know if that's possible with with you and, and uh, your storytelling. I just, I wish I was there, folks. If you saw the contraption we have set up, I'm upstairs at my house on a computer with one recording device. And then we have Marcus and Jim at our office with about 80 feet of cables stretched every direction you can think of so that we can try sync all three of these together. And the editor, Joe, is going <laughs> to... I don't know. Joe might quit after this, Marcus. We might be editing our own podcast. Yeah, I, I feel kind of bad because I have no idea what I'm doing. I did I did test the audio really quick and made sure that there was audio being recorded to the card, so I feel good about that. But the quality, right. it might be lacking. But we do have three channels of all of our audio being recorded right now. And I feel pretty good about that. Well, Jim says he trusts us no matter what the situation is. I think it's the other way around. We've been in some pretty hairy situations with Jim, and we're the ones always trusting him. We're still here. We're still here. We still are, even though Marcus tried to kill himself on that Sitka Blacktail hunt that one time when he slid down in that karst. Oh, he kind of slid into that hole. That was spooky. Hey, I didn't. I didn't lose the camera, though. You I didn't held, lose the camera. Held we, the camera but, over my head and sacrificed my face. and, yeah. and Split your noggin open. But we, did, we, we didn't know how deep that hole was. No, that's, that's true. <laughs> no, until we heard Marcus hit the bottom of it. <laughs> I'd say of all my years of filming, that's the most scared I've ever been out in the field is when I saw Marcus sliding down that slippery grass down into that crevasse. I'm like, oh, no. Uh, and it then, worked out. It worked out. It did. He's only, he's only got one small scar. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, and like the classic camera guy, he crawled, him, Tyler goes down to help him out of there, and Marcus has got blood running down his face. The camera is good. Didn't hurt the camera. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, the, this is a story I I wanted to go on until I ended up with uh, a pronghorn tag in Nevada. So I didn't get to go. But you, you I'm going to let you tell most of the story, Jim. This is a, a bison hunt out in the, the hinterlands of Alaska that... Through some miraculous 
alignment of the planets or your clean living or being married to the world's most wonderful woman, you ended up drawing this tag twice in what, 20 years? Yeah, I drew it in 2010, and then you have to wait 10 years before you can put in again, and I put in for two years and drew it this year. And uh, like, like, I said, like I told you before we started recording, I was speaking with the uh, area biologist, Adam McGrath, and he goes, I don't know anybody that's had this tag twice. Well, what I, I told you last week, it's a 0.46% chance of drawing, less than a half of 1%. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but if you don't put in you're not gonna draw <laughs> you mean they didn't just look you up randomly on the driver's license registrations and say hey jim bates shell we're gonna mail you a bison tag uh, no i don't think so Ah. <laughs> uh, well, how does this, how does an adventure like this start? Because I read in the regulations, it says, caution, applying for this tag is only accessible by air and boat. Yeah, it's, it's not the kind of place you drive to, park, and walk in on. And uh, actually what happened was, is I was still, the morning that the draw came out is my good friend, Judd Manuel, called and he goes, did you check the drawings? And I said, what did you get? And he goes, no. And he used some word to describe me, which I won't put on this recording. He goes, you need to go check the drawings. <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't complain because he had this bison hunt, I think, four years ago. So hmm. he'd also done it on the river and taken a really nice bull. They flew in with a super cub and landed on a gravel bar, which doesn't exist anymore because we floated right through the middle of that gravel bar this year. So the river completely changed. No, so I, I found out I had the tag and I immediately started taking a look at how I could float the Kuskokwim. I really wanted to float the South Fork of the Kuskokwim this time and access yeah. it. Yeah. And so I got a hold of, uh, of uh, Alaska Raft and I got a hold of Regal Air and those guys had partnered together for a lot of these hunts. And they knew exactly what I needed for gear and stuff. And I, within two days of drawing it, I had that stuff all booked. Because I didn't uh, want to miss out on getting a raft because they only have a limited number of these. So I rented a large cataract, an 18-foot cataract that had like 28-inch tubes. With a holy cow, a big metal frame. What did thing weighed 375 pounds or something? Yeah, em that thing empty. was a beast. It was a empty. Yeah, a floating tank. It was a floating tank, but it yeah. was incredibly movable because the tubes were so big, and okay. uh, they knew it was going to take two uh, 206s to fly into this remote strip at a place called Rhone. Um, and if you watch the Iditarod, uh, the of the mushers come out of the Alaska range and they come down this terrible gorge called the Denzel Gorge and they hit the Tatina River and they come out to this cabin that's called the Roan Roadhouse. And they usually sleep along the, and take a break along this airstrip that we landed on and then camped at the end of. And then from there, they take off and head towards Nikolai and McGrath. Uh, along a cut okay. trail off of the river. Well, we, we put in at the river and floated out to Nikolai. So I figured out it was gonna, you know, it was gonna take about ten to twelve days to really hunt that up in there and and do that time. And then about that time, uh, Barth Hamburg called and he found out I through Judd that I had that tag. He goes, I want to go. 
And so uh-huh. Barth is a really good hand in the outback and 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 uh, southeast Alaska. He's been hunting and boating and stuff all over for years, and I knew he'd be a great person to come along. And that's before I really knew that you guys were going to be able to make the trip. And uh, mm-hmm. so it ended up being the three of us uh, taking off and going down the river. So we flew into the road roadhouse with two 206s, unloaded all our stuff, and the planes disappeared. We were... We were three days late getting in. You were a day late getting in. You were going to come in afterwards. Barkus was. I'm starting to get used to that. I know. With, with Alaska or British Columbia, it's like, you know, you rarely fly on the day that you're supposed to fly. And I, I, I think at first that was like, what do you mean? What do you mean we can't fly? Like, well, we can't fly. The weather. <laughs> but now that's just like normal. That's normal. Like, oh yeah, maybe we'll get in. I don't know. <laughs> Probably probably within the week. There was a huge (laughs) rain cloud right at Rainy Pass. Rainy Pass is not named after old Joe Rainy, by the way. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so Rainy Pass just sit there. The cloud just sit there and sit there and sit there. And, of course, once it opened up, all of the air carriers were backed up by several days anyhow. Right. And so we we had to kind of get in the queue, you know. And they actually got us out. It, It opened on the... 21st, I think it was, and we got out the, the day of opening day, but we couldn't hunt that day. So we just uh, loaded all our stuff, packed it to the end of the runway. We were going to stay in the uh, cabin, but there was already uh, a gentleman and a caribou hunter in the cabin. So we went to the end of the runway and pitched tents and uh, tried to figure out how to put that raft together, read the, read the directions and all the parts. Yeah. <laughs> In like one of the most <laughs> picturesque Alaskan landscapes that you can imagine. I mean, you have this braided river and this amazing mountains. We spotted doll sheep from there. The black bear that was feeding. A black it. bear. It was just like, yeah, it's like you're in wow. Alaska. And I mean, the flight in, all of it was this, you know, camera guy's dream. It was pretty, pretty awesome. So this, this started like, it, this started like August 20th or something like that. When, when did the season start, Jim? I think it was the 21st or 22nd, I'd have to look, of yeah. August. Okay. And so we wanted to be there right at that time. And we were intentionally going in a couple days ahead of time and kind of setting up the raft and getting a feel, and then Marcus was going to show up and come in, and we all ended up in the same place at the same time. And uh, so... We just so there we are. We're in this beautiful place with this raft put together, and it's kind of like now we're jumping into it. And I think the, <laughs> the thing to really think about is once we got into that river, the river was flowing at that point, flowing about seven to eight miles an hour. It finally averaged out between six and seven miles an hour until we got down to the last thing. Once we pushed off the bank, we were going to Nikolai. Which was about. (laughs) (laughs) There's none of this. Let me off here. (laughs) We're not coming Uh, back. You know, it's like so. We were all laughing, like we're committed. This is it. We're going to Nikolai, and uh, you just got to shove off, and you're you're going. And of course, you're at that speed. We could have probably made the run in four days for sure, possibly even three days. But you want to stop and hunt, you know, and good habitat. So you really have to pace yourself in the raft or you can be way past where animals could be within an hour. 
Yeah. We were, we were, co we were yeah. covering eight miles in an hour on the river. Yeah, it was very fast for most of the flow, so, really. I mean, it was like, yeah, seven miles an hour minimum. What, what kind of habitat were you looking for? Are there burns and stuff there that creates grasslands for them, or do these bison live just in the, in the bush? They're pretty much in the bush. So we'll get into the history of it a little bit, but they occupy, where we were focusing on, they occupy the kind of the willow flats adjacent to the rivers. And uh, actually, we found out later they were focusing on a dandelion. Uh, we found a bunch of tracks of where they'd bedded and where they were pulling up this dandelion that was growing on the sandbars in there. Marcus and I kind of went back to why were we seeing sign right there? And you could see where they were eating these individual dandelions on this thing. <laughs> so there was a natural dandelion out there. It wasn't invasive or anything. And it just it, uh, was something they were really targeting. So adjacent to this is the Farewell Burn, named after Farewell Lake that happened in 1972. And I can't remember how many hundreds, thousands of acres. It was a gigantic burn, which we wandered into barely one day and, <laughs> and, and quickly realized that we would get out of there. <laughs> very thick. <laughs> Just... <laughs> thick underbrush and then deadfall. And yeah, it was not... It was... It was uh, bloomed out fireweed over your head with all the little white seeds and stuff coming off of it. And then all of the trees had fallen down, the burned trees. And so you couldn't see the jackstrawed timber underneath. And then it had started to revegetate up through that. And it was, it was a mess to try to crawl through. But from what I understand, that burn is one of the reasons that allowed the bison herd to to increase, right? Was it, yeah. it, it, you know, changed the habitat of that landscape a little bit, yeah. allowed for some more forage to come up, and at least I guess that's one of the theories. Yeah, so that that gave the herd a boost. I guess we probably need to get a little into the history of this. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're looking at the pictures, I think I sent you that stuff on the transplants in Alaska, and that, yep. that picture yep. of trucking bison from Montana <laughs> in crazy. individual wooden crates. I think 28 bison <laughs> in 1928. So think about the trip. They had to be trucked over or by train over to the coast and boated up to the interior and probably taken up the Yukon River to Fairbanks where they were eventually released down in, uh, by Delta. And I think they only lost wow. like one bison. Pretty incredible when you think about oh, it. Oh, it's just like, it's not like the, the trip, I think it took a month for the bison to get there. And so it's not like transport would be today. <laughs> and, and the bison herd grew then until in the mid 60s, they transplanted bison out 65 and 68 out to this place at, uh, by Farewell Lake, south of McGrath and south of Nikolai. And then in 1972, the burn happened. And so they kind of mm -hmm. idled along being a herd until that burn, which gave them all kinds of forage and stuff, and the population started growing. And then in 2010, there was another big burn uh, that happened the spring of before I hunted. And when we found the bison uh, in 2010, they were on the new grass that had come up with some rains along the edge of that spring burn. And so I saw like, from the air flying in in a super cub, I saw like 150 to 200 head in a, in a bunch. 
uh, which was like oh. half half of the bison population were out in that new burn, and uh, I got landed on a just a gravel blowout where the soil had been removed from the top of a little ridge and landed on on that gravel blowout. And when we, I remember that night, kind of a, an epiphany. We were about a mile and a half away from 150 to 200 animals, and the bulls were fighting. And the roar that night, it was a calm, calm, cool night, really cold, and the moon was out, and the roar was so loud from that many bison that we couldn't sleep. And I thought, oh. what was it like on the plains when there were millions? You must, have, yeah. you must have been 20, 30 miles away and you started hearing this dull something that you didn't know what it was as you were riding towards it. And as you got closer and closer and closer, it must have crescended into this just cacophony of noise that you couldn't hardly hear yourself think. I mean, it must have been incredible. Yeah. The, these bison are plains bison that got brought from Montana, but Alaska used to have a lot of wood bison historically right no so they just replanted wood bison and they're waiting for that population to increase until they become something that might be huntable in sometime in the future the cool thing was but when these were brought from uh, montana the the gene pool hadn't been contaminated with any cattle genes and so hmm. the bison that we have in alaska the plains bison are really pure which is kind of a, an interesting thing through isolation where you're way far from any cattle up there. It's preserved those really pure genes. Well, yeah. It's also interesting because, I mean, we talked about the burns and stuff when we, you know, we're going to make a full episode out of this hunt too, which I'm super excited about. And you dive a little bit more into the story of this as well. But those burns are changing the habitat too. And it's almost, some of those spots are now almost better suited for the plains bison. I mean, obviously, the wood bison are awesome native species that they're putting back in there, too. But it's like with all these new fires coming in, you're creating this different habitat that essentially hasn't existed in recent years. Remember so it when, is kind of interesting to think about. Um, when we flew out, we saw that one new burn that was over, just over from Farrell Lake on the other side right. down there. And, you know, that's going to come back in and, and grasses and sedges and, and forbs and stuff like that. And, and I'm sure the bison are going to find that as a major food source. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there was a burn that had, I think it was still listed as active when we got dropped off for that hunt. I mean, it was, wasn't, there was no smoke or anything, but yeah. it was an active fire last year. Yeah, the the logistics of fighting a fire out in that part of Alaska are probably as complicated as the logistics of trying to shoot a bison out in that part of Alaska. Yeah, they, they probably would let those burn unless they started threatening infrastructure, yeah. like a na like a native village or or one of the communities or the farewell airstrip or something like that. Um, th when they burned, when that burn happened in 2010. It actually went over and threatened, I don't know if it burned part of the lodge. There was a lodge at Farewell Lake, and I'm not sure if that lodge is there anymore as a result of that fire in 2010. Hmm. Huh. But speaking of which, there's not a lot of infrastructure to go around up there. No, there's when, not. <laughs> when you fly, you can fly hundreds of miles, and you don't see a power line, a fence, anything. Yeah. Maybe a shack at some, ca or some lake every once in a while, but other than that, it is like 
It is so cool. It's so wild. And to think, I mean, like, that is a more untouched landscape in terms of, you know, being partitioned out into fenced chunks than those, that those bison have now, like, compared to where they were native in the lower 48. That doesn't exist anymore. There's no landscape that vast down here. And they can move back and forth on that landscape depending on snow load and winds. So the area biologist told me that they often come down into the river corridor during the winter because the winds are so strong down the winter that they'll blow the snow out and expose areas where they could feed down along the river. Mm -hmm. So they'll come off those benches up above and drop down in. So Yeah, it's, uh, every time I go up there, it just blows my mind. It's, yeah. Yeah, we didn't see well, any, we didn't see anybody on the float. <laughs> no, we were the first. Okay, that was one of my questions, Jim. Is how much hunting pressure was there? <laughs> <laughs> there was one hunter <laughs> and, and two people. <laughs> we were the first people in the Nikolai for the year. Oh wow! As we came that, into the, that's the native village at the end of your float. That's right. And as we floated in there, the mayor came down and asked us our COVID status. And I asked if we could camp right along the road there, and he said, sure. And then pretty soon, everybody and the, their brother came down to see the guys who had the bison and came into the village and stuff. And so we had a lot of fun visiting with the uh, locals. Their hospitality was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Marcus, that was one of, when he came back, that was one of the first highlights he was talking about is just how welcoming everyone was at Nikolai. Oh yeah, that was yeah. There, it was fun to hang out there. One for of one of the elder gentlemen of the village uh, that talked to us probably the most and helped us move our gear. Hesitantly asked, he goes, "My mother's up there in the window and she sees all that bison meat on there. She couldn't possibly share enough that I could make her a bison stew tonight." And so I went over and I got a piece of meat. So the next morning she saw us making coffee, and so she'd whipped up some. Uh, what they call Eskimo ice cream, which is caribou fat with berries. And it was super, super sweet. And she set down the big bowl of that with three spoons for us and a bunch of uh, fresh uh, moose jerky because she wanted us to have a really good breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it was awesome. And it was sweet. Oh, it was really good. It was, it was good. It was almost a consistency like a yogurt or something like that. Really? Wow. So you guys take off from the landing strip. You've got this big cataract. Marcus, you've got what, a little alpaca raft? Yeah, so I was in an alpaca pack raft because I wanted to be mobile and go out ahead and get shots and... You know, I'm trying to get some good footage, and I figured I'd be handicapped inside the raft, so I wanted to to have my own vessel. But it, it worked out really well, I think, because it was nice. I could yeah. kind of, I was very nimble in the pack raft, and uh, I could kind of go out and scout ahead and make sure we weren't going to get into any hairy situations with the big raft that had all the gear on it and allowed me to get some really cool shots and kind of post up, set up the tripod and everything, so... It worked out really well. Marcus ran the entire river in that raft, and uh, he was our front person for most of the float. He would make sure that, well, I don't know, make sure, he would he would select the route that we <laughs> thought would might be the best, and it ended up working out. <laughs> we never we never really had to drag the boat very far. I mean, it was like, there's a few times, you know, you guys had to hop out and kind of push it over a gravel yeah, we bar. Probably but. about 15, 20 times we 
bottomed out on, and we just had to move it over like three feet and get back in the faster water. The fact that yeah. I think, I mean, when you looked at all the possibility of chan- yeah. channels that we could have ended up down, uh, I think we did all right because, <laughs> I mean, we could have easily ended up somewhere where we would have been unloading everything and carrying it, you know. And a, disma- dismantling yards. that great big raft and packing it. That was <laughs> a, my biggest fear. And what do you do in a raging torrent of water slammed up against a bunch of sweepers and logs? How do you do that, you know? Yeah, describe yeah. This, kind of describe the river. I mean, it changed a little bit right. as we went through the float, but I mean, I'm, I'm I think what one of the of most... I, we were all of a, a huge topic of discussion every day was we all had Gaia and we had Onyx and and other types of mapping software on our phones. Had, I think we had yeah we had I had the Go Hunt uh, had Go satellite. Hunt. We had like yep. three different satellite images that we were looking at of this river essentially. Except for the last five miles that are huge, big meanders, we were never in the channel. Really? It changed that much over time? Yeah, so the it was rain never, this, never accurate. The rain this spring had been so immense that the entire upper, the entire river had reorganized. And there were times that Marcus and I would be going along and we'd be talking and floating close together. And I'm like, we're a quarter mile out in the timber right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> like wow, there like there had been no channel there, and the river cut a straight channel right through the trees. Well, and you could tell some of those new channels. Like this is brand new this year. I mean, this was yeah, a really that is of significant age, and the water just cut through it, and you'd see all these new trees, <laughs> you know, tipped over in the river, and it was super cool. Like to see yeah. a river that was that dynamic. Like it, had, and I I feel like it has to be. I don't think it was. I mean, maybe we experienced a significant change, but I feel like it does that a lot because there's like the number of different braids going different ways. And like you could tell that there was so much water going down a few of those like not long before, but now it was like empty, an empty channel. Yeah, a lot of channels were abandoned. Uh, Other channels we actually found out like at uh, Egypt Mountain, we probably could have floated what would have been almost dry channels before, but now we're deep enough. We probably could have got a raft down through there. Yeah. Maybe not a raft with a bison on it. That kind of changed the dynamics of how that raft functioned. <laughs> you put 800 pounds of things on there, and it, it, it handled differently. <laughs> but uh, the, the, I think the dynamics of that, and the, the, for me, that was like everything was afresh. You didn't, you couldn't take your data that you had to guide you down a river and use it to navigate. You just had to use what was happening at that minute. And uh, yeah. that made that, so it wasn't like a class something river when you had big standing waves and boulders and waterfalls and stuff to navigate. You just had to make absolute last second decisions about going down between these six root wads to get over to that looked like deeper water over there now. And of course, when you make that tight turn, Marcus was more nimble than me, but with the big raft, it wanted to throw me into that wall of debris. So as I went around those corners, I was rowing away from all of that stuff all the time. And so that was the fun part of it, the challenges of that thing. And uh, you know, the fact that we went down through there really without incident, I, I... I'm just amazed. We didn't have to dismantle and pack. <laughs> right. Yeah. So with that, that raft, Jim, I mean, the Kuskokwim is a pretty big river. So to give the listener a feel, this isn't like a river that's only 50 feet across. This is a big river. 
And so there was one place that the mouth of the Post River that it was a single river. And it was about 40 yards wide. And my God, I have no idea how deep it must have been against that wall. It has a huge gorge yeah. cut through there. But, but the rest of the really? time, this river could vary from a mile wide and 50 braids. So the river would break into, you know, bifurcate and bifurcate and bifurcate and bifurcate. And so you try to pick the right channel to go into. And it, the river valley itself sometimes was a mile and a half or two miles wide, but the river corridor often was at least three quarters to a mile wide on that upper edge. And you had to pick the right channel. Well, and that's why we were so <laughs> focused on that satellite imagery at first is we're like, well, you know, we'll just scout it out on the satellite imagery and kind of figure out what, where the main channel is and go, go down that. But we, yeah. qu- we quickly realized that it was pretty much pointless. Like it just, it's like, this doesn't match at all. Like what is the main channel or what yeah. looks like the main channel on satellite is dry completely, you know, it's just, and now it's over here three quarters of a mile yeah. and, and all the water's taking you out across that. And so that was <laughs> that the first two days we're like, well, we can put this all away. Yeah. We'd spent a lot of time picking out where we thought we might want to camp and where we thought based on habitat, where we wanted to look and all that kind of stuff. That kind of went by the wayside because you just, a lot yeah. of times you couldn't even get to, or it didn't exist anymore. Like it had been totally eroded in whatever had happened in the spring. And so the, the, the dynamics of that upper river, the hydrology of that system and the way the geomorphology of how it changed so rapidly and completely uh, was that was that was the fun challenge of it all. Yeah. How long of oars would you have on a cataract that big? I mean, you you got to have a pretty long oar to get some bite in the water and move that thing. I don't know what they were. They, they twelve were, maybe. They were significant. Ten or twelve foot, and they had big paddles. Yeah. And I could really put some strain on them. And I didn't have to do it often, but boy, when I wanted to get after it, you could move that raft. Yeah. Well, you you probably would have to if you're trying to stay away from all those sweepers because the current would want to take something that big right up into all that debris. And, of course, <laughs> you know, when you're moving, you want to... The fastest water is right up against the bank right with all the sweepers and all that stuff. And the other side, it was shallow and slow, and you kind of want to hit that middle ground. And we were pretty good at being able to hold that. I had to have Marcus put an orange tarp on because he was green with camouflage clothes. And the first time he went shooting down there with his little raft, he just like disappeared. <laughs> Blended into the <laughs> And we were supposed to be following him. And I'm like, I have no clue where he went. He just, he just, the landscape just absorbed him, you know, and he was gone. <laughs> I was having a blast on the pack raft. That was, I mean, and I, you can load it down too, which actually, makes it almost easier to use so i'd put a ton of my gear in there and just have the tubes filled up and then just yeah it was a lot more nimble to to cruise around on but i was i was so fun it was a fun float and this like the scenics were so cool just unbelievable the whole time and i mean it changed from the upper section as we went down through but you start uh, out in these really steep really jagged peaks and you're a little bit closer compressed in the valleys a little bit narrower as it goes down and you add the post river and some of these other things it widens out a little bit more and you get more sediment in there in these big gravel bars and uh you know the the hunt was 
Well, we were on the river hunting for about seven or eight days before I actually took a bison. But the taking of the bison was just a small part of that whole trip. I mean, the, the landscape and being in that landscape is what was just absolutely incredible. How we dealt with it, you know, and, and, and figuring out how to get through it and stuff. And I think we became more comfortable with it as we moved through it. The first, the first few, oh my God, we're going to die in this sea of logs. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty intimidating looking down oh. that because I mean it just you couldn't really like we said you can't scout it via satellite imagery and some of it you're just looking at a wall of sweepers and logs and it almost you know some of that stuff it looks like there's no route through but once you get closer then you would spot the route and like okay I need to go left or I need to cut right really quick and so it's like is this a very dynamic like you couldn't, it didn't allow for any planning. You just kind of had to react to each situation, which I'm a little bit of adrenaline junkie, so I kind of enjoyed it. It was like this, like. <laughs> well, yeah, Marcus is the guy to take on that type of expedition, Jim. It would have been interesting to have the recording from Barth and I, the, from the going from the, oh, my God, we're going to die, to the, oh, there's a slot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we're already 35 minutes into the podcast. We haven't even talked about any of the hunt yet. All we've talked about is the adventure and the and the the float and everything else. But before we get to the hunt, uh, Marcus, I don't know how many hunts you've done on those alpaca rafts. Now you've you've done Alaska black bear. You've done this hunt. And anyone who's a doubter of whether or not they're they're rugged enough and durable enough, I'm sure when they see this footage, they're gonna be like, "I got to get me one of those." Yeah, it's it, they're pretty incredible. And I think I at the very beginning of the trip, I had some of my gear on the big raft, but once we had the bison down, I put all of my gear. So I had all the camera gear, all my camping gear, tent, everything on that alpaca. And because it has the cargo fly, so you can unzip the back and you can load it up and uh, just, you can put a lot of weight in there. I forget, it was a mule, I forget what the max weight capacity is, but it's significant and you can put a lot of stuff in there. And if you fill it all the way up, you can stand up in that thing too, floating down the river. It's just that, that stable if you got a bunch of weight in those two. So I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I was so skeptical of those things when we first got them. Like, they're just like this. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I just, like, in order to be that lightweight, you think that they're going to be flimsy and they're just going to, like, you know, if you hit a rock, it's going to pop. But it's, no, you can you can hit rocks. I mean, it's it's pretty durable. And yeah. Look at all the bottom, gravel bottom oh, stuff yeah. you bounced off on this one. I mean, like, you were, I mean, he was bottoming them out trying to, he was trying to get off and, and stop and take footage of us going by and taking side channels and stuff where he often found himself in too shallow of a water and he just was able to slide right over it. I was incredibly impressed with the durability of the raft and maneuverability. Um, it would require a little bit bigger version of that if you got a bison and was relying on a pack raft. Pack raft. Oh. <laughs> no, if you're going to do it, if you're going to put like a, I think you could maybe get away with, if you had like the forager, you could probably get away. I, well, I know I've seen pictures of it. People have done it. You could put a caribou on one. If you like boned out a caribou and your gear, I think you could feasibly do it. But a moose or a bison, uh, you'd be, you'd be splitting it amongst a couple different boats for sure. Um, yeah, I'm really. I really want to do a caribou hunt out of one of those. 
like a true awesome. a true pack raft hunt where you you know you you backpack in and float down a river. Like I have several ideas that I want to feel out, and I'm yeah. There's so many fun things you can do with those. And then in the summer well, too, I just take them into mountain lakes and fish mountain lakes with them too. But yeah, it's. I think the only thing you had to be careful with was keeping the zipper clean. Yeah, you definitely want to have an, your your clean kit to make sure the zipper doesn't fail. And I was just kind of par- yeah. I was extra paranoid about that because you know. That's, but you never had a leak. No, no, I. Because I remember every time you took your gear out, I was looking at it going like, "Well, how what is that going to be?" And it wasn't. Yeah, so. no, it's just like because all the most of the spots we landed are super sandy, and so you got to be careful, especially because your gear just ends up with sand on it. Just happens. And so yeah. as you're loading up your cargo fly, you get sand on that zipper. You just have to keep that super clean because that seals your boat. Like if you got debris in there and then try to zip it closed, it's not, not good. But other than that, yeah. that's like the only thing I was super <clears throat> paranoid about, and we, it never ended up being an issue. I don't know how it was when you got home, but like where I had piled my gear in the garage, it was almost a sand dune underneath it when I picked it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I had that because I had the seek outside. I had that TB tent, and it was just like... Caked. Oh, man. Just caked. It worked pretty good like, most of the trip. It worked... Like, if you... It, it just sucks in that sand. Like, the same thing. It's all the sand's fault. Like, if you don't get good staking points on that thing, like, and the wind picks up, you're screwed. <laughs> like, because it's like you're very reliant on your staking points. And so that one night, I think that after you killed the bison, like, we staked it out and it just like the wind is picking out like this is not good and then the river sure. came the wind came down the river and it right at dawn i hear an interesting bunch of words out of marcus's tent and i flew out of the tent and, and grabbed it before it because he had all his cameras and all of his stuff exposed in there trying to dry him and i grabbed the edge of the tent and held on to it so it wouldn't like take him and everything down the river uh yeah other than that it worked pretty good but yeah there's <laughs> the, yeah, the moral of the story was we had sand on everything after that. It was just like camera gear, tent, sleeping bag, just covered in sand. Yeah. Well, anybody who is interested in alpaca rafts, we uh, we had Thor on the podcast, I don't know, two or three years ago probably, and he talked about the whole story. He's from Alaska, the guy who invented alpaca rafts, and he sounds like the kind of trips you did jim that was what he would go do and his mom helped him design these things and uh so anyhow if you're interested folks go check them out and uh promo code randy's gonna save you a bunch of money if you do that uh but i'm hoping that promo code randy will get me a bison tag jim i don't know (laughs) you should try that you know why not maybe i don't want to do promo code jim because i've had it twice <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe that's what I need to do when I apply for Alaska here in a couple of days. Maybe there's a promo code. I'll put Jim in there. But that's right. So uh, let's let's get to the hunting part of this because you're talking about if you float past a section that you wanted to hunt with a big raft like that in the strong current, you're not paddling back upstream if you miss the spot. None of our landings were pretty. (laughs) (laughs) We were not graceful when we stopped the 18-foot cataract in that current. (laughs) A lot of times, Barth would, like, leap out and try to rope a log or a stump or something, and I would slam into the bank, and that was pretty much our gracefulness on our thing. So stopping that was always, you had to plan way ahead 
to make that stop. And so we started out. We, we had, we had uh, several places we wanted to take a look at. The first place we looked at, there was old bison sign. Right. Um, we, we were at the Tatina, we, yeah. Tatina Flats where the, the river first came into not too far. Well, I think only went three quarters of a mile down the river. But there was no fresh sign. And then we went hmm. down to the first place where we kind of thought we wanted to camp anyhow. And there was a little bit fresher sign there, but really in retrospect and looking back, it wasn't near as fresh as it needed to be. Uh, those little patties that they leave out there can fool you and how long they stay moist on the inside, depending on how much sunshine and rain and wind and stuff blows across them. And so we floated down to the post. Mm-hmm. And we stopped, and there were some pretty fresh-looking tracks right there. And so we set up a camp right at the mouth of the Post River, and we spent two days hunting that. And I think there probably had been five or six bison in there, and Marcus and I tracked them all over that flat. It would have been a really nice place to take one. It was super gentle ground, and, and pretty much there. We found where they'd been rolling and bedding and stuff, like just a few hundred yards out of where our camp was. But I think in retrospect, we were probably three days or four days behind them. Uh, we found the trail that went up into the berm, and we followed that trail up into the berm, and that's when we thought, well, we'll just walk out in this berm and get on that higher spot in glass. And that's when we realized we didn't want to hunt nor kill anything in the berm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we ended up in a few spots where it would have been an interesting pack out too, like... Once you got in there, it's a ways. It's like, man, do we? Should, <laughs> I think sometimes they come down. They got to drink water at some point. We should kill one down close to. Yeah, <laughs> close to we, we, had that, we had that conversation often. <laughs> that this is not a deer or an elk. That this is a little bit bigger than that. So then we, yeah. so we stayed. See, the th- third day of the thing, we moved and went to a place called uh, Egypt Mountain. Egypt Mountain had a about a five-mile-long or four-mile-long big flat with a huge willow field, and we knew that there was bison there. And Marcus was ahead, went around the corner, crash-landed onto this little silty thing and stepped out and took I don't know how many steps down the bank, and he was face-to-face with a bull. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I didn't have a camera. I didn't have... You weren't with me, so, yeah, it was a... We were having not the, a, not the perfect time to run into the first bison of the trip, but well, you know, well, it might have been perfect. <laughs> it all worked out. But so we, it was a hard place to get into, but it was a good place to camp eventually. And actually, what we did is we brought the raft around the corner, and I edged it up against a sweeper that was kind of a gentle sweeper sticking out with branches on it. And I just let the raft come up against that. And then I went down with Marcus real quick, and we went and tracked that bull for, I don't know, half mile, maybe a little bit further, and finally gave up on it. Come back, and we had to do a little bit of logging and clearing and got the raft pulled up out of the water and got our tents and stuff. And then Marcus and I took off, and I'm pretty sure it was the same bull. We walked right into it. I think we were 30 yards Yeah, very tops. close. He was sleeping in an old dry channel in a sandbank, and I come around the corner, and he got up out of his bed, and I slipped the scope covers off and was going to just basically had a headshot at, like, point blank. 
And mm-hmm. he didn't like that idea, and he ran off. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, and at this point of the hunt, I had one second of bison footage now. So. Over, over, my, over, my, over my shoulder, I think he yeah. got a little bit of that bison. And so we went around the corner, and we took him again for, I don't know how far we went out there that time. Anyhow, we got up the next day and, and went on over to where this river was, and we actually found, oh, this maybe 15 or a dozen of them had come up through this valley relatively recent and been rolling, and the bulls had been rolling in the sand, and we started finding some cow patties and stuff that was pretty fresh. And uh, I got to digress a little bit. The, in the backstory going on at this whole thing, the very first place we camped, uh, Barth got a text from the family that he'd been staying with in Anchorage and they informed them that they had COVID really bad. Ooh. And Barth realized that he was starting to feel that too. So Barth at this point has been masked up and in the front of the raft where the wind was taking the wind away from me and self-sequestering in his tent. And so this was Whoa. like this was like day four. So that added a, a whole. It was killing him. Oh my God! He just did not be able to go with us hunting and not be out there. He was just going crazy. But he also didn't feel worth getting up. And it took him about four days, and he started getting better and better and better. And I think on day five or something, he was like, "Can I go for a walk about on my own?" Maybe that was day six. I don't remember. They all kind of run together. So Marcus and I went way up to the north end of this thing. That's what I was having, starting to have the, about the time we found this great fresh bison patty and we were like four miles from the raft. I was questioning our sanity at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, Barth went to the south end, north end, north end of the gravel bar and he had a giant bull and a, two, a cow and a calf walk right across the river behind him. So uh, they said they were kind of running up the middle. He texted us on the inReach and said they were kind of running up the middle of this channel, and Marcus and I made haste coming back out there and waited on some of those channels, but we never found, found where that bull had taken those cows, or the cows had taken the bull more than likely. But we started getting an <clears throat> epiphany at that point that it seemed like all the tracks were moving downriver. Like most of the sign was getting fresher and fresher and fresher as we were moving downriver. And so we kind of talked that evening that, uh, no, we went back the next day. You and I went back the next day during that rain and spent the entire day over there. And that's where we kind of come to the conclusion that we should probably pull up camp and start moving downstream and just check almost every single gravel bar and look for sign until we start getting into super, super, super fresh sign. So that's what we started the next morning after that. It was a nice day, a little bit sunny. It wasn't, the wind wasn't too bad. Uh, you had to watch in the evening sometimes or at late afternoon, the wind would come up the river, which would slow your pace going down the river. And uh, we didn't get that too bad. We got it a little bit sometimes. And sometimes when you went around meanders, you'd be facing that wind. So at this time, Marcus, you're still at one second of bison footage? Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Had a lot of pictures of tracks. I had a lot of us walking around in really pretty willows. And the the colors were changing. And 
Had some amazing scenics for sure. Yeah, a lot of tracks. Um, rainbows. We had lots of rainbows. We saw rainbows. <laughs> but I was, I was lacking on the bison footage at this point. <laughs> when I, and of course, Bartha, you know, he's like, oh man, it was so picturesque. We, I saw that bull coming across the river and he was just splashing. And, uh, just Egypt like, Mountain in the background. Yeah, the and bit, <laughs> mountain in the background. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's cool. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> He did. I think he, he snapped a picture on the phone. Well, then it's funny too because we we realized at that point too. It's like you know, both both Barth and I would have been able to shoot bison at that point. Uh, and I had trip. <laughs> and Jim was the only one who didn't have a a bison in, in rifle range. <laughs> so Barth actually ended up with COVID then. Oh yeah, he was sick. And was dog. sick. Yeah, it ended up it ended up being like a great place to quarantine for. Yeah, or eleven or so. But you guys didn't. Get we it. never got it. We never, and we'd been with him in the plane. We'd been with him in a car. We'd been in, you know, the tent having coffee in the morning and stuff, and and we didn't get anything. Yeah, it worked wow. out luckily. But Barth was sick. He was so scared that like Marcus would get it or I'd get it, and we wouldn't be able to con- complete the hunt or anything like that. So he was being super careful too, and. uh then he kind of, you know, as he started getting over it, he just masked up and we started running around and he started hunting with us and stuff again and it was all fine. So he kind of came out of it pretty quick. He was about four days of feeling pretty bad and then he kind of bounced back, so. You guys would have to search hard to add a few more twists and wrinkles to this. I mean, how many remote Alaska bison hunts does somebody end up with a bad case of COVID along the yeah, way? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I, I was like, this is, Barth was upset, and I was like, don't worry, you'll be upset. This is the world with COVID. You know, this, these kind of things are going to happen to us from time to time. Yeah. And what a great place to quarantine. Yeah, and we're about as far away from anybody else as you could possibly get. So. Yep. <laughs> we loaded everything up. I can't remember what day it was. I'd have to look on my thing. We hunted uh, around so. the Egypt for quite. It was like four, four days, days I think. and we've been two days. So we must be now about day yeah. s- day six or seven. And we just decided we're going to continue downstream, but we're going to go really slow and hit. You know, like, especially with having Marcus be so mobile, it was easier for him to pop in and take a real quick look at a at a gravel bar than it was for us and stuff. And so we started leapfrogging down the the way, and I don't, it must have been just before noon. So we stopped at that one place, and you and I walked that trail down the river, and those were fresh. They had just been. Oh, like, that's right. Yeah. That herd had just been there. And we found where they'd bedded and where they got up and where they had been feeding and there was fresh patties and stuff. So that really encouraged us to continue down river that we knew there was bison on down there. And we floated around a corner when we could see the backside of Egypt and we were gonna stop the glass so we could see tracks on that gravel bar. So we all tied up on that gravel bar and we were sitting there talking and stuff. And I think Marcus turned over and looked at me to say something and he goes, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know, three quarters of a mile away or whatever, it was a long ways away. Here's this big, huge bull bison walking down the banks of the river. Yeah, that was, it almost seemed mythical at that point. After, when we walked around (laughs) in those willows for four days, I'm like, man, like. Like when this is going to happen, it's going to be quick. (laughs) Oh, that's what I kept thinking too. I'm like, if we do see one, it's going to be quick. And it's like, just, 
I don't know if we're going to see one. Like, it just, yeah, it almost seemed like they didn't exist at that point. Right. In the scheme of things, it wasn't that long, but at the time, I'm like, man, we got to, we've been walking a lot and we have not seen one. So what 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 happened with this one that's walking down the river? Is he walking towards you guys, or is he on the other side of the river? Or? He's walking down the river towards a really prominent rock outcrop that stuck out where there used to be a big oxbow go back behind. We didn't know that the river had completely changed course, and now it's way out in front of that rock. And so he was just kind of slowly walking along there, and... We were like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, like, get in the raft. Let's go. <laughs> like, we can't kill it here. You know, we've got to get closer. So we lost sight of him. And I think he'd gone back into the willows just slightly. It, it doesn't, there's veils of willows on those bars. And so losing an animal even as big as a bison on there would be pretty easy to do. As we came around that last meander, I was, sta- was kind of getting semi-close. I was going to get over there against that bank, and I was glassing. I think you said to the right or something like that. Marcus was behind and filming us looking for the bison and you looked to the right or something and he was coming out of the river. Yeah, he, I think he, because he crossed the river, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. crossed the river. Yeah. Instead of going back in the willows where we thought he'd gone, he'd come to that prominent point, dove into the river and was coming out in a gravel <laughs> bar where the river split into two. Well, I, I got to say, too, I was pretty proud of the shot in this moment, too, because I think I spotted the bison, and so I got my paddle, and I set the paddle down, and I have the uh, A7, this camera, with a 1-400 to 400 lens on it. So this giant lens. I'm floating down the river. It's not that smooth at this point, so I'm spinning in circles, getting, and I got a shot of Jim uh, in paddling the raft at the bison in the background and I, I rack focus from the raft to the bison mid river mid float <laughs> spinning in circles and I was like I can't believe I just got that shot like <laughs> that was that was my my uh, money shot for the trip I feel like we're all gonna be looking <laughs> you've told us about this shot we're all we're all looking forward to and it it's probably not as good as I remember it but I just like I, know, I know that it was in the frame it's probably super it's, shaky <laughs> but it's it, like this is a fact that I <laughs> got any footage at all in that Didn't moment. you tell me you were shooting in slow motion? It was, yeah, I was yeah. in slow-mo, so yeah. that was, that was good. So Barth and I are talking. <laughs> Barth says, what are we going to do? And I said, get down in the raft as low as you can. There's a giant pile of logs at the end of this thing. So the bison is just slowly going out across the gravel bar. And we're still 300, 400 yards from the end of the gravel bar coming in. And Barth said, what are you going to do? And I said, so I'm going to crash into the end of the bar, because we don't do anything gently. And I said, you bail out over the edge of the raft and hold onto the raft. I'm going to try to get over you and everything else. I have to take my life vest off before I can shoulder a rifle. And uh, the nice thing is I had put the rifle on with a sling, so I actually had it on yeah, my back. a little more ready. I was a little point. more ready at that point. Well, nothing went the way. So we were down as low as we could, rowing as hard as I could, and then I missed the end of that gravel bar, and we went shooting right by the pile of wood. And the bison saw us, and he went about 150 yards and turned around and was like, what the heck is that? You know, it's like like he sees people every day. And about that time, I think we did crash into the gravel, and Barth got out and held onto the raft. And you crashed onto the gravel and went running by him and said, don't let my raft float away or something like that. Yeah, I think I tried to pull it up on the bank, but I didn't really pull it. I was just like 
try to keep an eye on that. <laughs> Anyhow, the, the, the bison took off running, and I was trying to imagine a bison's spine, and I forgot that right under the hump that the spine takes an enormous dip down to his neck and comes back up. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, Marcus's uh, 300 Howa, and I shot, and I shot right over the spine into the hump. And he, so that was at 180 yards, and he was running full tilt by this time. This is full bore, linear panic, bison, get out of here kind of gallop stuff. And he turns, so he was quartering hard away the first shot, and he turns, and I jacked another round in, and he was 235 yards, and I broke his back. And he dumped right there. And (laughs) then I went forward to a route, and he was able to get up on one leg, kind of, and and then I put a bullet through his heart. And uh, I turned around, and Marcus was standing there, which was the most amazing thing that I could imagine, because I forgot (laughs) all about Marcus at that point. (laughs) (laughs) There was not going to be any, are you on him? (laughs) No, we didn't didn't have Oh, really? None of None of this, hold on, Jim, just wait a second. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so he, he gets the amazing, <laughs> amazing award for getting out of the boat and actually capturing this entire thing one way or another on film. Yeah, yeah, I got it all. It's not going to be super steady tripod shots, but I did. I managed to get all the shots, so... <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, moments well, and months of planning and everything else was over in, like, six seconds. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, though, in no, the scheme of I'm, things, like, that was a blip on the adventure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. And, of course, the best part about it was is we could get the raft within about 120 yards of this thing. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's really good. good. Extra, Extra points for that, Jim. Yeah. Oh, I know it. And I was pretty much freaking when he took off running because he was really close to the river on the other side. That's why I decided I need to break him down. If I would have lung shot him, he could have made the river, and God knows how that would have turned out. Yeah, that would have been another adventure in itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, my Lord. That size (laughs) of animal in the water. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I... You know, I've lucked out, and I've had two bison tags, and I don't think people realize how big a bison is until you walk up to one that's laying there, and you're like, uh-oh, we got to take care of this thing. <laughs> this one was way bigger body-wise than the one I took in 2010, too, and I'm pretty sure he was a lot older. Um, the guy from the bug thing is going to pull the tooth and send to you so that you can send that in. Okay, great. So the, all of this is over in, like, eight or ten seconds and now it's like now what do we do (laughs) (laughs) well the nice thing is it was like noon yeah and it wasn't raining oh wow and it wasn't raining and it wasn't terrible weather and i had one elated cameraman because he'd been waiting for this moment because now the hunt is over and he can deploy the drone <laughs> I was ex- Oh. <laughs> once once the hunt was over. Yeah, he couldn't use it before the hunt was over. Now the hunt's over yeah, and he so immediately deployed this. I did get some cool footage of cool uh, footage of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh 
No, it was just, it kind of just happened so fast as it often does on hunts. You know, yeah. a lot of times you just think that it's going to be, you know, it's like, man, are we actually going to find one? Are we going to get a chance at this? And then it just, boom, it's over. It just happens so quick. Yeah. And I think yeah. the thing from my perspective that was awesome was he was a single animal, not having to worry about the herd getting around him, right. getting a second shot. Um, that whole aspect of hunting a herd animal as big as a bison where maybe he doesn't go down right away or does, I've heard about other bulls protecting him and all that, that whole, all the things that can go on. And this was sweet that this was just a lone bison. I'm pretty sure he was a little bit bigger than the bison in the herd that was just downstream that we saw the next day. And he might've been cruising down there to talk to those bulls about the cows that they had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, it honestly couldn't have worked out much better for where he fell too, because like you said, he's relatively close to the river, but it was wide open. There was no thick brush around for a, a bear to sneak up on. Yeah, you. we had r- water on both sides of us. We were, I mean, kind of on an island. I mean, it was a ton of braid, so it was like that a lot of places. But just wide open, great spot, gravel bar to work on him. Oh, it doesn't get much better for. The, so that the, aspect. besides all the pictures and photos and trying to move it and roll it over to take photos and all that kind of aspect of it, one of the things for butchering one of these, they live on river bars, and their hide is completely full of sand. Oh, really? <laughs> we dulled everything we had. <laughs> if it wasn't for the serrated Gerber blades... We'd still be out there chewing on that thing, trying to get the meat off. <laughs> yeah, San, sandy bison hide is not great for keeping your knife sharp. That oh, is, no. That is for sure. Well, a bison hide is so thick anyhow. Yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. huge amount of leather. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think right behind the skull, we measured that neck hide, and it was like an inch. Oh, I'm sure. It was just huge, least, just yeah. amazingly thick. And uh, so did Barth get to see the whole thing unfold where oh, yeah. he was holding yeah. the raft or were you guys out of sight? Oh, no, no, no. He was right there. He was, he, oh, he, was, he was like, I think he, I didn't, I, I think he didn't think I was going to engage when the bison took off running and, and <laughs> he said, once you start shooting, you get pretty focused. <laughs> I, I was going to point that out. Having hunted with you enough, Jim, you are the most jovial fun guy and then there's a flip of that switch in jim bagetail where it's like all right things are getting serious now hold on <laughs> I, i'm sure marcus knows that oh, also yeah. oh yeah, yeah marcus the marcus knows that's me well. i'm like i'm just yeah i'm just over the shoulder just ready at, at all times as soon as it's as it's happening there's no we're done communicating at that point. I, I know I know what's happening. I know what needs to be filmed. <laughs> so now you take care of this bison in the middle of some of the highest grizzly densities you could ever imagine. How do you how do you take care of meat in the world of grizzlies out in the middle of Alaska when you got you know what a twelve fourteen hundred pound animal that's going to give you. 800 pounds of meat. Oh, uh, see, we got about, we figured about with the, all the bones in, it was close to 800 with the head. And I think I got 574 pounds of package stuff out of it or something like that. It was pretty amazing what came out of this guy. He was huge. Uh, I had two sets of the big caribou game bag sets, the big, big, big game bag set. We used them both. 
So we used, I don't know, 14 bags or something like that. We had a lot of bags of stuff. What always blows my mind on bison is like, so you cut your quarters off like normal, but then there's just just extra meat everywhere, it seems like. like, There's like the stuff on the hump, and then there's just like... On the ribs, everything is just has like there's just like muscles that I feel like don't exist on other animals. I don't know. It's just like because I'm like I'm so accustomed to a deer and an elk and an antelope that it's just like all you know muscle memory of like everything. I know exactly where to cut where everything is, and then on that bison, I'm like, what is what is that? Like what is this chunk of meat? Like I don't even know what that is. But I remember, it the, like there was just extra meat everywhere. The neck, like half the neck was eighty pounds. Yeah, yeah, you it was know, it's like, like <laughs> this big chunk. Of, so we also had to leave the meat naturally attached to the bones of the rear ham and front shoulder and ribs. Yeah, so we, that's state law. Hatcheted the ribs off and. So we rolled, we cut the ribs oh. and left all the ribs on the bones and rolled it into a big thing, and each rib set went into one game peg. So, yeah. Like, wow. The, the, ten, the, the back strap off of it weighed like 45 pounds, one, <laughs> one side. It was wonderful. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like serious yeah. meat right there. Yeah. I mean, to Marcus's point, every time you work on a bison, you're like, well, normally that thin little piece of meat I'd make into trim. With a bison, you can stake just about every muscle that they have or roast it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did I don't know if he talked to you and showed you, uh, we found one of the bullets on the far no. side of that oh, against the hide. So we had, we yeah. were shooting the, was it? It was 180 grain E-tips, which yeah. is the copper bullet, the nozzle copper bullet out of a 300 wind mag. It was an absolutely perfect mushroom. Like you couldn't have designed a better mushroom. And that thing shot completely through, right above the spine, completely through the front shoulders and lodged on the far side. That was the first shot. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a really good testament if you wonder if those copper bullets will be good for large game. I'm telling you. That <laughs> That was a, and that, the other two never exited. I don't remember having other exit Yeah, I'm trying to remember if we, I just remember you found that one. Yeah, we did not find the other two. They were wandering around down inside. I'll tell you how big the bison is. Bart said, I'd like to have the heart. And so we wallowed around down in there and pulled the heart out. And I had put one of those E-tips dead center through the middle of the heart. But there was still so much to eat, we just cleaned it up and he took it home anyhow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bison heart is just slightly smaller than a basketball, but not by much. Not by much. <laughs> so we very carefully took everything and put it into bags. And then we trudged over the... 120 yards to the raft. Uh, we took the advice of the raft company and put it all in the front. We moved all our gear to the back and put it all in the front, and we found out later that, that we needed to separate the meat and, and putting <laughs> half of it on the back and half on the front because the, the raft itself was severely deformed when we pushed off to go to camp that night. <laughs> Nose wheelie yeah. going down the river. <laughs> it was a little heavy in the front. David Barth came all the way to the back and sat back behind me, and that didn't help anything. There was just way too much meat and stuff up there <laughs> so we just it was kind of it's kind of fun and the idea that you know you you want to get away from the carcass in that situation although we didn't leave the because we left had to take all the the bones and stuff with us we didn't leave much for the predators there was a spine and some yeah. guts you know and that was it 
And uh, we just floated away. We just kind of left it on the gravel bar and went downstream. Yeah, that was yeah. nice to yeah. be able to nice. just exit. Like, we didn't have to worry about that being 100 yards away or anything. Like, the yeah. big smelly carcass was at least nowhere near where we camped. But We, we ended up, we, and we tried to do the gutless method until the, the paunch swelled to the point that we determined that we needed to remove it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you get a, a mass that large, you can't get that heat out of there. That paunch starts to get big real quick. But So the, the high gym with all that sand on it, I can't imagine what, I know how much one of their hides weighs without a ton of sand in it. Did, did you keep the hide? Did you bring it out? I didn't bring that hide out. So the very first bison I shot, I brought the hide out and it's like $1,200. I have one of those things tanned. And I was like, I don't, yeah. need, I don't need two bison hides. Not at that price. No. And I'd ask people, like all my friends, like, do you want me to bring this hide out? You need to tell me now because the way I make my cuts is going to make a huge difference on that. And, uh, they all wanted to hide right up to the place that they called the taxidermist and found out what it was going to cost to have it tanned. <laughs> Which, yeah. in retrospect, yeah. I was really glad nobody wanted to hide. <laughs> and it was yeah. a pretty thin-haired, because, I mean, this is August. Right. You know, he wasn't shaggy or, well, a bison, bison's still shaggy, no matter yeah. what you do. <laughs> one, of my favorite shots, well, one, one, one of my favorite shots is, is we cut the head off, and, and Marcus helped me put it on a backpack and packing that whole head, fur, tongue, feathers, and all back over to the raft. It yeah. really shows you when it's, on, when it's on my back and it's like bigger than my shoulder and its nose is about as big as my butt. It gives you an appreciation of just how huge these things are. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's an adventure. And it's so common though, like Marcus said, very often you go on big adventures like this and it happens in 20 seconds oh yeah you know i for sure I, I think about my caribou hunt up in the cassie yards marcus we'd ridden horse eight hours one day after a what 100 mile beaver flight then we rode horses 10 hours the next day and in 30 seconds there's a caribou laying on the ground <laughs> <Yep. It's> like, <laughs> yeah i had two i had thought about Using my hawking and stuff, and I am really glad that I used the 300. That was the, in that environment and what we were doing out there, that was the right gun for that hunt. Yeah. Yeah, especially you're constantly in and out of the boats, and, like, you're putting the, the gun into a dry bag, and it's just, like, everything's and wet. We, we had quite, we never had any, like, torrential downpour or anything, but it was just, you know, the rain would come in, and it rained for a little bit, and it's just stuff's constantly wet, and... Yeah, I imagine the muzzleloader would be a little bit of a pain in that environment, but I mean, well, not that you're not that you don't deal with <laughs> wet climates uh, most of the time, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm probably the master at keeping your powder dry. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, the guy who lives on Prince of Wales Island in what do you guys get? A hundred inches of rain a year? Hundred twenty? Yeah, hundred to hundred twenty something. Yeah, like that. and you hunt with a with a traditional black powder rifle. <laughs> I think in 30 years I've had it not go off once and I recap really? I, and our deer are patient sometimes and I recapped and shot the deer anyhow 
So. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, so we got it on the raft, and we went down and made uh-huh. camp, and that was the night we, the morning, the next morning, we had a little bit of wind and a little bit of excitement. Yeah. As Marcus's tent tried to go downstream. And the, the cool thing about it was, is we took a lot of time that morning, and we re- completely read did how we wanted the weight distribution and thought about it carefully on the raft and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. We were there for a couple hours, maybe three hours in the morning. We had a nice breakfast. We had our coffee. And there was three sweepers around the corner. And so to get out of there, I needed to line the raft back up. And there was in a, <coughs> excuse me, there was a place there that you could actually line it back up. And so Marcus like disappears around the corner. And uh, Barth and I get on the river. Marcus is gone. I look on the bank, and he's over there flagging us over, and there's a huge herd of, of bison off to the side. Yeah, I was pretty excited. We, we had floated, uh, I don't know, maybe like 200 yards. It was, it was right from camp. Like, we floated 200 yards, and then there's this huge herd of bison, which is just so funny because it'd be become this mythical thing from the, the whole trip and <laughs> now you're covered up in them <laughs> there's this herd and uh so i'm like frantically getting the tripod out getting the camera ready and then ended up getting some pretty cool footage some pretty i finally got that you know because at this point i think i'm only at like 21 seconds of, by, <laughs> of live bison footage. So, <laughs> we spent, spent the night sleeping 300 yards from these things or they were sleeping 300 yards from us well, in hindsight, I, yeah. had, I had heard them in the middle of the night. We thought, we I, both of us had woke up, and they, I think they were crossing the river yeah. and coming onto that sandbar. Well, I was worried it was a bear. Really? And that's, that's, so when you were asking about what you do with the meat and the bear stuff, it's like we didn't really have much to, you know, we had that little electric fence, but I think a, a hungry bear, that little electric fence is not going to stop a hungry bear. And, uh, no. but I think we, I feel like most of the nights after it was dead, we kind of strategically camped where there was water, you know, it wasn't, it was kind of out in the open. There was water on both sides of us pretty much every night, I believe. Yeah. Well, it was defensible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we, you know, we had, and I tried to put Barth closer to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were curious. They didn't know what we were. We were just these things that crashed into the side of the river, and the river was fast right there. And the bison kind of get up slow and kind of shake some sand off and start walking over to see what we are. <laughs> wow. Were there any bulls in the group? There, there was one nice bull and two small bulls at the end. The bull that was in there wasn't huh. quite as b- big as the bull that I got, but he was he was noticeably big. And one of the cows must have been... Uh, still breedable or something because he was going over where she peed and doing the lip curl and the whole thing and so i don't know what the fo- i know what footage i got on my phone was incredible so i can only imagine the footage that marcus was able to get with the big camera yeah and they crossed the river in front of us yeah they weighed the river in front of us and they come up the cut bank on the other side and i think they went into another stretch of the river and then come out again so you know we looked at the river as being enormous barrier a physical barrier to cross, and the bison just, like, shot right across there. Oh, yeah, they did not care at all. You can tell that they just go back and forth across that thing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the takeaways, too, is that when you finally get into a lot of bison sign on that hunt, those things can come and go. 
that they, they are not hindered by that braided river whatsoever, which it dictated everything that we did. But uh, right. when watching how fast they could cover a half mile, you know, when we did watch them, we watched them for quite a while and they just like, you know, didn't look like they were really walking that fast. They, they ran a little bit, but like most of the time they're just walking, but it's like, man, they, they went a long ways in this 10 minutes that we've been watching them. Like they covered some serious ground. So just because, just because we were seeing fresh tracks and fresh sign does not mean that they're anywhere near there necessarily. And talking to the area so, biologist, there was a lot of bison up by Farewell Lakes and over by the airstrip and clear over to the Windy Fork. So a lot of my, these 400 animals are spread out over, I'm talking about an enormous piece of real estate. And so, yeah. you know, I think we saw maybe totally 50 bison yeah probably because we ended up seeing that other group as well i didn't see what you and bar saw because oh, i was that's right. i was holding down to the raft yeah it was pretty cool we were floating down this was i don't know what day it was i, I think mean, it was that, that, after you would i think it was that same morning it might have been the same day but yeah we were floating by and just hear this noise and it's probably similar to what you experienced in your tent that night but is this like what is that this is this grunting and this is Deep so we were right on noise. we were right on the edge of a big sweep uh, sweeping corner, and there was a wall of of the willows, and just behind that wall of willows was this eruption of these huge bellows, and it was obviously two bulls just absolutely going at it. Yeah, it was it was uh, super cool. So we crash land, and Marcus runs off with the camera into this. And I reached over and grabbed the Barth had a 30 out six, and I gave it to Barth. I said, Marcus is taking a camera to a bullfight. You need to get in there and back him up. <laughs> I did have a pistol on me. But, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> wow. So how far... How far from your takeout were you at this point when you shot it? Were you mid-float, two-thirds away, three-quarters? We made it in two days, and we floated about 26, 24 to 26 miles a day. So we were 50 miles from our takeout. We're less, less than halfway of the total yeah, float, I'd say. Right. But I mean, oh, wow. what we had been doing huh. at that point, I mean, we, there was four days where we never moved camp. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we actually were, more than that if you count the post. Right. So it's like, of the seven days we hunted, we only floated just a few hours. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, we. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't cover that much ground in the scheme of things until you had that on the ground. Yeah, that the, you know the the fact that the river is so fast, you could you could blow through that place. Yeah. And I think that's that's a super important aspect of this hunt is to slow down. And uh, I think that to do it over again, well, I wouldn't say that. So I had, right after this hunt was done, I had a really good friend from Craig, Alaska, and on Prince of Wales Island that's husband drew this thing, and I downloaded all the information that we had, all our waypoints and everything else. They flew into Roan. They had the rafts. They were going to do it in pack rafts. Uh, and they had one big raft for hanging out the meat. They were waiting for her daughter to fly in. And they found a, a bison upstream, and her husband was sitting on that one. She goes back to check to see if her daughter was going to land that day or not, and like 25 head walked out on the Rhone <laughs> gravel bar. She ran back up and got her husband. He killed one probably 
four or 500 yards from where we had pitched our tents at the end of the runway, and they never had to do the float. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just so like that, just like everything, this can change in seconds. Like, it's, it's like, like yeah. there's nothing there, and then they're there. <laughs> I think we were talking yeah. about that as a possibility. I'm like, well, can we still do the float if you shoot one on the runway? <laughs> We talked about that because we were all geared up. You know, we were kind of all dressed up and no place to go at that point if we had killed one right there. Hindsight, <laughs> we could have made that float, I know, in four days. Yeah, if you just floated all day, you could get it done in a hurry. But it's just like, yeah, you're just going to float by everything. You're not going to know what's going on. Right. If you just so this raft that we had had the where, Mar- where uh, Barth and I were inside the raft, but at the front it had two big decks. That must have been four foot by six or eight feet. And uh, we used to stack the meat on that. So that held it 25 inches above the water, maybe. So you had that cold uh-huh. water going underneath the meat. It was pretty, pretty sweet for keeping it cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Huh. It was pretty cool to watch the landscape change back to before we got to Nikolai. Just the it started to slow down and meander, and it, there was I think we pretty much got out of the braided stuff as well. And it just yeah the the lands, oh, yeah. it was just it was really fun to experience the changing of the landscape as we floated through. Because I mean we're just in the rugged mountains when we started, and then it just really meandered out and was this big wide river. By the time we got down, it was just like a. Yeah, this is an incredible experience to be able to just float that in a mountain. We had big walls. So <clears throat> during the last ice age, the Alobo ice came way out almost to Nikolai. And there were these glacial moraines. Well, each one of those glacial moraines was a pinch point in the river. And behind that glacial moraine, it would make these big braided systems. And then we would go by 200-foot-high walls of gravel where you'd cut through a glacial moraine and then you'd pop out. So it got flatter and flatter and flatter as we got away out down from the mountains and stuff. And it complete. Then once we crossed the last moraine, we went into the old part of the river that really never changed seasonally. And those were big. And the river slowed down to like two, two and a half miles an hour. Yeah, it was kind of funny. The last, like, whatever it was, four or five miles took a long time (laughs) relative because we'd been going seven miles an hour the whole time, and then all of a sudden we're just going two miles an hour. Like, oh, didn't plan for this. We almost had to paddle down. (laughs) (laughs) That part was a slow float. Yeah, it was a pretty incredible experience. I'm glad that... I got to be there. Thanks for inviting me along. Yeah, that's what Barth said too. He goes, you know, like he'd been there before with Judd and landed right uh, on that gravel bar, but he said I never got to explore anything because mm-hmm. we were just there. Yeah, you know, and and they they virtually walked out the next morning, and Judd Judd texted me on the end reach. He said I kind of got lucky. I killed a bison about two hundred yards off of the runway. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> so the the population there jim does it fluctuate based on hard winters or habitat predation and just all the above like you'd expect in alaska mainly it's the winters that and you know and, and of how much boy these birds help anytime you're improving their from their perspective improving their habitat with a fire out there it's gonna and the, the farewell burn is still producing tremendous amount of forage. And what we saw in there when we got in there, even though it's a pain to walk through, 
uh, there's a lot of forage and stuff still from 1972 and that stuff greening up and coming back. But uh, hmm. I was actually shocked how few calves were in that one herd. I think there was two calves out of 20... Let's see, if there was 28, there was three. So there was like 25, no, 22 cows and two calves or something like that in that herd. So there, there weren't a lot of calves in the one we saw. I don't know if they got into some bad predation. I imagine wolves are a, a factor in their lives out there and bears on occasion. Yeah, we saw, we saw a handful of wolf yeah. tracks and... I saw that one grizzly. And we saw a lot of grizzly tracks at uh, Egypt, oh, Egypt Mountain. Yeah, there was a lot of bear tracks there. And remember, there was a lot of black bear tracks too. Yep. <clears throat> so I know that uh, brown bears and black bears often key in on the calving of the uh, moose. I would imagine that maybe they've learned to key in on the calving of the bison, although okay. that would be a... You know, trying to figure out if that's something they want to risk going in and taking a calf from a herd of bison. <laughs> yeah, imagine they fight back. Yeah, yeah. Uh. it's different than taking it from a lone cow moose. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the predation is. Uh, I know that the population has been growing and is is really pretty high right now. Um, so all I needed to do was see one. Yeah. And we, we saw the one, but it was good that he got some other... We had that one other herd that was running down the gravel bar. I don't know if you got any footage of that. We come around that corner, and they were paralleling us for right. a race. Yeah, I think I, I, I got footage. It wasn't great footage. I don't think I ever got a tripod set up, but yeah. Yeah, it was, we ended up seeing a few once we got down lower. They were definitely in an area that historically had held bison down along the river, even though they could be anywhere in that corridor. And we saw a sign almost everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. And uh, but the definitely as we went downstream, the sign got fresher and fresher and fresher. So I don't know what they were. It tended to look like they were moving downstream, but I don't know where they were headed. Maybe there was something going on that we didn't know. Some kind of big party down there, bison party. <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you think you're the only tag holder who probably did that float this year, or do a lot of people do it? No, I know there was one other group that went after us uh, because I talked to the raft guy, and uh, he had rented to them, and they'd flown them in. And uh, I don't know if they'd got a bison or not. So I don't know how many people do that. There's not really a place other than where we put in to put in. So you kind of either mm -hmm. got to do the whole float or don't do the float. There's probably a couple yeah. of the gravel bars out there that would be big enough to put a wheel plane down. And there's uh, one operator in that area who I flew out with the first time. Um, Rob could fly you in as a super cub. Uh, but then you're really limited in where you can hunt. Like if we'd have been stuck at, yeah. let's say, Egypt, Right. I don't know if we'd have got anything because they'd seemed to have been there but then moved. Yeah. I, I, I mean, every bison we saw there was walking downstream. Yep. And I don't know if that was a coincidence or not. I mean, not. I shouldn't say every bison we saw because I only saw one. <laughs> the, that bar saw and then also just the tracks that we were right. seeing. We yeah. kept seeing tracks and they were all heading downstream. So that was kind of interesting. You know, there's 400 to 500 animals out there but it's so big of a landscape it's pretty oh, much yeah. like finding that needle in the haystack i mean even though they're there 
you're not guaranteed you're going to be taking one home. And what yeah. I what I see, I sent you that stuff that said uh, out of twenty tags, they were like eighty five to eighty eight percent success if if anybody hunted it. And then there's a second right. season where they hunt it in like March, and most of that's off yeah. of a snowmobile. And so they take oh, that's how they do the that. Guy, yeah. The guy, the gentleman that uh, Nikolai said, they leave Nikolai and they go back up the Iditarod Trail to Farewell Lake and Lost Lake, and they right. they find where the bison are out in those open meadows, uh, able to graze at the edge of it where the snow might be thinner, and then they they try to get close enough with a snowmobile that they can go in and make a shot. Yeah, because they said that <laughs> I think they just use well. There's the Iditarod, and then the the um, what's the snowmobile race? The ice. Something. Oh, the the yeah. iron dog. Iron dog, yeah. Anyway, so there's those trails that kind of exist through there, and so they're able to get their snow machines up there. So they're actually sod trails through the willows that go for okay. hundreds of miles. I've known people that have taken off from the Anchorage area and gone all the way over the Iditarod and hunted these bison in March and not flown out there and then rode their snowmobiles back. I don't know how they get yeah, fuel. Oh my God. Miles. Yeah, I don't know. You'd have to bring a lot of fuel with you or something. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about. But Yeah, you'd better be a good mechanic because most snowmobiles I know need to be wrenched on after about 30 or 40 miles. So. Oh, yeah. There's no place out there to get them fixed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... And <laughs> Nikolai, like, all of the... You know, a shout out to Yamaha boat motors, apparently, but every single boat there had a Yamaha boat motor, which I just thought was hilarious. Because it's like, well, there's something to that then. Cause those, they, those must not break down nearly as often. I talked to the folks at Nikolai about how they heat their place and they run their generators and stuff, and it's all ran off of diesel. And they said 30 years ago they could get barges to Nikolai, but so much sediment has come down the river, they no longer can get barges up. So everything has to be flown in. Boy, that's expensive. Wasn't it like twelve dollars a gallon or, or something? something was, yeah, it was some incredible yeah. thing. Yeah. Wow. So you talked about how someone could fly you out there in a super cub and land on one of those gravel bars. Well, that's all fine and dandy until you get a bison. Then how the hell you get that thing out of there unless you're going to pay for about a dozen? What you'd have to do is the nearest airstrip, either Tatina or Roan airstrip or to Farewell, you'd have to ferry that by Super Cub over to one of those bigger airstrips and then charter with a plane to come in like a 206 or a couple 206s in our, so we, I can tell you that we completely filled two 206s with our raft gear and a bison. Yeah. That was complete labor, they were really? choked full. So, uh, really? it, I mean, it can be done, but it's just logistically you have to set up those kind of pickups and moves. And so when I shot a bison in 2010, he picked us up in a two in a super cub and flew us over to the farewell strip and then flew us back to their lodge. And the next day we came back over the 206 and picked up all the meat and the gear and stuff like that and took it out of there. So there's a lot of logistical stuff goes on. It's not, it's not like park the truck and go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> and everything, the minute you involve airplanes, it's all weather dependent. And the weather this yeah. year was so spotty. Like, I could not believe on the day that we flew out that I was able to 
because we were supposed to fly out the day after that. And the, the day we flew out was beautiful and sunny. We had no problem making it back to town. And the next day, it socked in again, and they were closed down for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like, you know, the heavens opened up, the skies opened up, and the super clubs appeared on the land strip, and we went home. <laughs> yeah, you never know when you're just going to wow. be stuck out there. We could have been in Nikolai a for a week. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, would have, they would have put us to work in a week. Yeah. We would have been doing something for them. Oh, now, yeah, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. yeah, and gladly so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's that's an adventure. I mean, I the reason I wanted to go, I told Marcus, I said, well, if I can make it work, I'm just bringing a 20-gauge, and I'm going to shoot ptarmigan. Did you guys see any ptarmigan on here? No, roughed grouse. Yeah, there was grouse. Really? That's it? Well, I'll fly to Alaska for grouse, too, but... Huh. We had all kinds of discussions about how you would have enjoyed a few of our grouse encounters. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I even really? brought a 22 pistol. Cause you, you pursued that one that one day. Oh, I did kind of go look around for a little bit, but yeah, yeah never fired a shot at a grouse. No. no. No, I'm waiting for you guys. What are you guys to draw? I'll go, I'll just go row, you know, like I'll, we'll just get the big raft again and we'll just go tool down the river. <sighs> There's All so right, many well. adventures to be had up there, though. It's just like, I mean, that's just one of so many options. My yeah. head is just, every time I go to Alaska, my head is just turning with the possibilities of pack rafting or flying in somewhere or hiking in somewhere, whatever it is. There's just, oh, it's so fun up there. I was really impressed Whoa. with your pack raft and how it handled that. Oh, yeah. Was there was no problems so with that handy. river and getting around and that stuff. In fact, you were so much more mobile. Mm -hmm. The only thing would be just getting a raft big enough to go, like we did, to go with it so that if you kill something that you can yeah, you handle almost, that much meat and that much weight. You almost need like four or five people with big pack rafts to be able to handle that, to split it all out. But. I really like the cataraft too. They're not that I ever wanted to do that, but several times I straddled something in the river. Oh yeah, I was able. I was able to shoot over things instead of scraping the bottom all the way along some little stick bouncing up and down or something. Right. Well, Marcus, you know, you talked about you were thinking of adventures. I think I told you that in August, you know, your, your calendar to go to Alaska is pretty open. If you and Kara or whoever want to go with a bunch of pack rafts and go caribou hunting or whatever so i'm, I'm gonna figure out a way somehow to get back up there next year for sure we had tried to before this bison was drawn we was hoping that they would draw the the moose yeah so i think yeah moose moose is high up on the list and and float caribou so yeah and luckily we have the the master here himself to pick his brain <laughs> I can bounce ideas <laughs> off of him all day and come up with different... different well, not ideas. only that, I've got a lot of other friends up there. Yeah. So I said, Judd just bought a Super Cub. Oh, okay. And he's taking, pilot, he's taking lessons right now on flying, so... Wow. <clears throat> we might have another thing out there, a little thing to put in the corner. Yeah. I don't know how many trips you'd have to take four or five people, camera gear, rafts, and all that stuff at a Super Cub to get them in, but what the heck. Right, yeah. I think that, <laughs> that's the thing, too. I mean, with the pack raft, you just kind of force yourself to go lightweight regardless. You know, you're probably freeze-dried and lightweight food to, to make that work regardless, so I've got probably that. pretty well suited for a Super Cub. I've got that little bit heavier pack raft that right. weighs 46 pounds and it'll take 1,200 pounds. 
Yeah. So I've been in it with myself, all my camping gear, and a moose. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it, 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 we were getting super shallow water shooting down that creek. So pack rafts are, I'm sold on them. Oh, man. Yeah. It just opens up a world. I looked at this place to hunt moose for whew, seven years, eight years, and I could never figure out how to get down there. And then I came onto these pack rafts, and it's just like it just opened up a whole Landed at a lake, packed over a quarter mile, and went down like 35 miles of this right. place you just can't get to any other way. Yeah, that's, that's fun. That's cool. Well, you're on the you're in the penalty box for ten more years now, Jim. I mean, for bison. So <laughs> I'm going to be 75 when I draw it next. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the well, deal I, with Barth I, too. I, I, Barth had his birthday. Got COVID on his birthday, and his wife texted him that they were pregnant. Oh yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Whoa. Man, he had a quite a day. Yeah. That was a heck of a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you you uh, stand by if uh, if I end up drawing that tag, uh, you know who's going to be the first person who gets a phone call. And then the second thing is rent the rent the raft and get the get the plane booked because yeah. there's only so many planes and rafts. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. the thing with these, if you get one of these tags, is don't sit there and plan for three months. <laughs> you need right. to, virt- virtually by the end of the week after I knew I'd drawn that tag, I had all that stuff in place. And it worked out. Yeah. It worked out great. They were great people to work with. Yeah. And uh, the guy that, the, deck, the guy that did all of the handling of the baggage and stuff like that was a big fan to Randy Newberg. Oh, yeah. What was his name? Uh-oh. Worked at Regal. Worked Damn. at Regal Air. What's his name? Sorry. Uh-oh. Well, if he would have got to know me, that would have probably changed. Well, we told him that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you guys set him straight. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jim. But, you know, Jim, you, you've been building points down in the lower 48 forever. When are we going to get you on a, a bugling elk muzzleloader hunt? Ah, you tell me which one to put in for. <laughs> well, yeah, you let's. Let. I think I can draw all but one hunt in Colorado, and I can mm. draw almost any hunt I want in Wyoming. Yeah, well, sounds to me like we. Uh, Wyoming is on. Uh, let's see, that was just October fourth or something like that. So there's still possibility of a bugle oh, yeah. hunt on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're still bugling then. Do they have well, a special muzzleloader season? No, they don't have oh, a special okay. muzzleloader season. It just has to be in a rifle season. I don't think they have any muzzleloader seasons in Wyoming. I've never seen it. Colorado does. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you let us know. We'll be there. We owe you. <laughs> that or antelope. We gotta. We could go back and do another antelope. <laughs> you tell me when. I, you don't have to bribe me very hard to get me to clear my calendar for a pronghorn hunt. So, you, you know how that works for me. So, he's very picky. <laughs> he taught me an awful lot because I would have uh, that hunt would have been over hours before it ever was. <laughs> yeah, if I ever get a good antelope tag, Randy needs to be there because I'm like, I don't know, that one's got prongs. That'll do. <laughs> Oh, Randy, oh, the Randy's way that one worked out, though, that was amazing, to go after and find that one animal and make that, animal and make that up. Yeah. 
I might have well, used up uh, all my uh, antelope juju on that. Yeah. No, 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 no. You're just getting started. <laughs> I mean, how many 81 and a half inch pronghorn have been shot with an, in, a traditional hawk and muzzle loader, you suppose? Uh, probably not too many in the last few years. <laughs> no, probably not. That was a fun hunt. I it's probably the most trying time I ever had watching a guest hunter when that buck laid there out in front of you guys for four hours and I got my 7mm08 over there in the truck and you could have shot him multiple times. Okay. I just, I'd like to point out on camera, I used a howa. Mm-hmm. On this hunt. On yeah. the bison hunt. I know you did. So, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of like... What's that quote from Quigley Down Under? It's not that I, I, I didn't say I didn't know how to use him. I just said I didn't have much use for him. <laughs> uh, no, you, you're the one person on our show that has a free pass to use your, your hawking. Everyone else, we hand them a howa. But <clears throat> with you, you're probably just as lethal with that as you are with a, with a center fire. I'm so. fond of... of uh, Marcus's 300. Everything I've pointed at has come home with me. Yeah, that's true. Got a really? elk, elk with it. That's right. That was the first time it was filmed. Yeah, you got that an little elk short, then... short elk hunt and then a whitetail. Yep. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I'm gonna be up making a a pest of myself sometime in May or June because I have that bear tag in your backyard. We need to talk about how you want to do that. I might have to du- get my boat all dusted up and pretty up. There you go. Oh well, you and Karen might conveniently have a vacation scheduled so that you don't got to put up with me if I show up in your your neck of the woods. Did you put in for that so you could eat her cooking? Well, truth be known, yeah. Don't don't be offended by that, but. Her cooking and her hospitality is definitely one of the highlights of being there. Not, not, not that that's a personal affront to you or anything, but that and my my larder of smoked salmon. Yeah, I I, I get into that pretty hard. I'm sure you got to replenish by the time I leave. You probably you have been too polite though. You haven't sent me a bill for all the smoked salmon I eat when I'm up there, but. No, it's it, the adventures you've been on, Jim, are so incredible, and this is just one of them. And I'm so glad that Marcus was there, and and there's not a better guy you could have to capture an adventure like this than Marcus Hockett. I don't, um, I don't know about that, but I'm glad I, I do. Help. I I've been on I've been on a lot of adventures, Marcus, and uh, you, you're the guy. I think Jim would agree. I do agree. And I think the thing is, we all kind of sit around and the last night we build a fire and roasted tenderloins with a little bit of coal fat on them. And that was pretty good eating. And we had a great place to camp. And we all agreed that the hunt was fun, but the landscape is what dominated it. And then just like we were all in awe. It's just how extraordinarily beautiful that landscape was and the changes and uh, it, and the river, you know, the power of that river and how we interacted with that on that landscape. That, that's the story of this hunt. The 15 seconds of shooting something. Right. A few hours of butchering and 
Although I got to tell you, it eats really good. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Those tenderloins that night was that was amazing. Oh, it I was mean, amazing. It, they're always great. That you know, when you're out in the wild eating over a campfire, it's pretty. We hard build to a eat. we build a willow fire alongside the river and sit there and ate tenderloins. Yeah, it doesn't get much better. No, it doesn't. You do end up with a lot of friends when the neighborhood finds out that you got wild bison meat in your freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed that in the last few months, Jim? How many friends is all of us? They will come yeah. over and go like, don't you have bison? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. It does fill your freezer up pretty quick, even a half a bison. So I split that with Barth. But I tell you what, it's a good thing I have three freezers. <laughs> yeah. So you guys needed two 206s to get out then, right? With all the meat and gear and everything, because... That was very marginal. They were completely loaded. Yeah, because what's their cargo allowance, like 1,200 pounds, something like that? We might have been slightly over that. <laughs> that's, that's when the pilot looks at you and says, don't film this. <laughs> <laughs> it had a long runway, and it was a nice sunny day with a little bit of warm air, which probably felt good. Of course, that makes thinner air. That's not a good thing. You need a little heavier air under the wings. He could have used probably a 35-knot headwind instead of having no wind that day. The nice part about it was... It was August in Alaska, and there was almost always a breeze, and we really didn't have bad bugs. And it could have been <laughs> horrid. Yeah, we really lucked out on the, the weather, the bugs, just everything. Yeah. Turned out. I've had some really bad bug episodes in the interior of Alaska, even in early September before. Oh, yeah, before that first hard freeze. First hard freeze. Yeah. Well, Jim, thanks so much. Sure appreciate you taking the time and coming down. And sorry I'm laid up here with some sort of Shanghai chicken flu or something I got here. I don't know, but I don't think I'll be at the office. Maybe I'll be in next week, but I don't want to get anybody else sick with what I got here. Good thing season's over. Every time I go to Vegas, I had to go to Vegas for a tra for a appearance. Vegas is like the world's largest Petri dish. Every time I go there, I come back, I got some new virus. And every time I get tested, they're like, well, we don't know what it is, but you got a virus. It's just Vegas, I guess. Are you going to go to the expo this year in Salt Lake? No, I won't be there. I'll be going to a sheep show in Reno. And then I'll be in Portland for that show which i think might be the same week as the one in salt lake then i got puyallup and band redmond area uh so if they yeah, don't if they I don't know. overlap i might see you at the one in portland okay yeah you came down that one time it was nice to see you there and uh Anyhow, we better let you go, let Marcus go. I don't want Marcus to get in trouble with Kara because Kara is the, she's, she's like our, our best guest, our best host. No, uh, no, that's not a comment on either of you guys, but Kara gets way more positive comments than anybody. So don't want Marcus to get in trouble with her. So, but. Get healed up that I brought you down some smoked salmon and I'm giving it to Marcus. 
So if you don't mm. see any smoked salmon, you know why. <laughs> well, whatever you do, don't leave it. Don't leave it in those freezers at the office because I will never see any if you leave it at the freezers in the office. It'll be gone. But, yeah. Well, thanks for being here, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story of most, like Jim said, mostly adventures in 15 seconds of shooting a bison. And uh, I think that puts it in such a great context of what a hunt like that is in Alaska. It's the adventure, the landscape. It's about realizing how small and insignificant you really are compared to the bigger world out there. And uh, I'd encourage any of you who have an interest in adventure, uh, go to Alaska and do it. And uh, hopefully they will. None of you put in for that tag in 10 years. <laughs> Jim wants to draw it again. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, folks. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. <laughs>